This is Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. I'm Amy Breslow. Each week, I invite a different guest to share their personal experiences regarding gender and gender issues. When I use the word gender, I mean the range of social roles, personality traits, attitudes, behaviors, values, and relative power that society assigns to females, males, and other individuals. Gender is an identity that is learned. How we define gender changes over time and can vary within and across cultures. This podcast is recorded at my kitchen table and may contain sounds of life from my home and neighborhood in Washington, D.C. At the end of today's episode, I'm excited to share some news about a new campaign on Patreon. Episode 23. My guest today is John, who identifies as a straight white man and has no preferred pronouns. Hi, John. Welcome to Your Own Voice. I am so pleased to have you here. Thank you, Amy. I'm very excited to be here. So, John, I'd like to start by asking, how do you identify? Well, that's a good question. As a straight white male, I don't know that I identify with anything particularly interesting. No particular pronouns, I I don't think. So, you don't prefer he, him pronouns, or...? I really don't feel strongly about it. Um, Yeah. I, I uh, appreciate and understand that people do and, and their reasons why. Um, I just don't happen to feel strongly about it. John, when did you first become aware of different gender roles in your life? Mm, probably uh, at an early age. Uh, my parents divorced pretty early on, so I was raised by my mom and my sister. And my mother was a working mother, often uh, held down two jobs uh, while raising my sister and I. And, you know, I'd seen the neighborhood that uh, other kids, uh, their their families were still, you know, parents were still married. Um, You know, dads would go off to work and mothers would stay home and do things like cook and clean. And so I feel as though I noticed that fairly early on, possibly kindergartenish, first grade. My sister and I uh, often, we were latchkey kids growing up. And so it was not unusual to go to a neighbor's house after school, and their mothers would be home and would have treats and snacks after school. So definitely something, you know, having a stay-at-home mom looked appealing because you got snacks. <laughs> Did you ever talk about this with your mom or with your sister? Uh, related issues, yes. Not that exact issue, but uh, my mother was very vocal and articulate about being a uh, a working mother, about what we now call sexual discrimination, but back then it was just sort of how things were. She, Her, her main job was as an educator, had a PhD in uh, art education, and um, was teaching art uh, anywhere from middle school, high school, and briefly at the college level, but would also work at a department store at nights. But she would uh, share a lot about preference that her male colleagues would get uh, in the academic workplace. It was it was not a taboo subject. It was not a mystery. Um, my sister and I were made very well aware of it uh, very early on in our lives. John, what issues of gender do you confront in your current workplace or in past working situations? Or is it a non-issue for you? Well, in a sense, it's a non-issue for me. I'm a straight white male. Uh, I have as much privilege as this society gives to somebody without looking at how much they make. So I feel as though 
while I am not confronted with gender-related issues personally or as uh, personal obstacles or challenges, I absolutely see it in, in all aspects in the workplace, um, outside of the workplace. I'm fortunate enough uh, to work in an organization where there is a lot of gender, race, and sexual equality. And I'm very grateful for that because having that uh, level of diversity and inclusion, which of course all things being relative, I say it has greater diversity and inclusion than many other organizations in the world today. So having as much um, gender and sexual and, and racial diversity creates an open space for people to not only be themselves, but to bring their best ideas and so it's wonderful to be a part of and to see and participate in an environment, a workplace, where people are able to to bring their best to the workplace, uh, the creative ideas, uh, critical thinking, and creative problem solving. But I also realize that that's not the norm. Uh, I have been in workplaces uh, with different organizations where that was not the case. Like I mentioned, while I personally do not encounter these challenges, I definitely have seen uh, colleagues and close friends um, who very much have experienced a micro discrimination, for lack of a better phrase, something that might not rise to the level of making uh, an equal employment opportunity complaint, but clearly an older male supervisor was behaving like a jerk. What do you think is possible in the current environment or conversation around gender that was not possible even a few years ago? I think that's a difficult question to answer because I feel as though the environment uh, is dynamic at the moment, um, both here in this country uh, as well as internationally. There is a political environment that is not conducive to openness, to any type of... Um, diversity inclusion related to gender and sex and, and race. So I feel as though the political dynamic in the world today has in some kind of way hijacked uh, and is holding hostage what might be possible. Uh, and of course, the pendulum swings, um, different, you know, political Classes will come and go, uh, different administrations will be elected and, and come into power. And, and as the political pendulum swings, I feel as though the, um, the, the gender pendulum swings along with it. And so right now, the short answer to your question, I feel as though not as much as possible as has been or will be. I feel as though there is a I think backlash might be too strong a word, but... Or not, actually. <laughs> I don't think backlash is too strong at all. Yeah. And so I feel as though, um, like uh, you see uh, ads and yard signs for the resistance against the current political climate uh, here in the U.S., uh, yeah, I feel that there's a, a gender backlash that is welling up to swing the pendulum back the other way. Uh, and I'm certainly hopeful for that and, and looking for opportunities to support that in any way I can. So it's interesting. I, I realize I shouldn't have cut you off because I think the way that I was interpreting backlash in the way that you were talking about backlash were a little different. So when, when you said backlash, I thought you meant backlash to the fact that progress is being made, 
Yes, actually, both are true. Yeah, a, a backlash from conservatives on women taking over the world and running for president, and then the pendulum swings the other way, and then the, there's a backlash against stifled opportunities uh, for equality. So I, I think that the backlash happens on both sides, both on the progressive liberal side as well as the, the conservative side. It's just who's feeling the backlash, who's resentful of whatever the status quo may be. When I was a kid growing up with my single mom and my sister, who both of whom I think did a great job raising me, that was a different world. Um, and even up through the 90s, I feel as though things seem to be getting better. And by better, I mean more equal opportunities. But it is a dynamic, and it does change. And so it's just frustrating that it is something that can be changed. It shouldn't be. Um, it should just be normal reality, that men and women can go be them best, their best selves regardless of what they want to do. So a follow-up question to that, as a self-identified straight white man, I'm really interested to know what kinds of conversations have you been having with your fellow straight white men, or basically your friends, your colleagues, but other men, as the Me Too movement has taken off and gotten underway, do you guys talk about things that you may have done consciously or unconsciously, or whether it's actions or attitudes that you realize, I maybe can't do that anymore? Or, or even think about it yourself if you're not having these conversations. Right. I would like to think that I have not done anything regrettable in that realm. Um, but surely I have, uh, probably unconsciously or subconsciously. Um, but the types of conversations I have with my fellow straight white men um, on the issue of gender recently have been driven by events in the news. So uh, one particular conversation that's driven by uh, news events is uh, Harvey Weinstein and the young aspiring actresses that he sexually assaulted and raped. And there was one instance uh, of Harvey Weinstein showing up at a comedy club in New York and a, a woman comedian uh, stopped her show, I guess, and um, started hollering at him, hey, you know, this is Harvey Weinstein. He's a rapist. Like, you all should, like, kick him out of here. And so uh, that's an example of uh, the types of things, types of conversations my uh, fellow straight white friends um, and I have. Uh, so the, the conversations are largely driven by um, the news, the media cycle, news cycle. But it's shock and outrage that this woman comedian who was pointing out a horrible person and saying he should get kicked out, but somehow she was villainized as, who knows what, ruining what might have otherwise been a good night out at a comedy club. Like, you know, these offenders, you know, you reap what you sow. And if you're going to behave like a jerk and take advantage of people and assault them and commit crimes against people, there's no reason you should be able to roll around town with all of your previous privilege it's just not fair to expect that, uh, and I think she was right to call him out. And so I support her and, and all of the women that were, you know, assaulted by Harvey Weinstein and with their lawsuits and, and the long, slow journey to healing and recovery. But that's an example of the types of questions uh, or issues that we discuss. You made me think of something that I've heard from different places, and I'd love to hear your reaction to it. There are people 
who are on this bandwagon that somehow makes it look like suddenly men or let's say let's call it what it is mostly straight white men are somehow now victims as opposed to people who are being held accountable for past actions and one of my friends had a reaction to this and i'm curious your reaction to her reaction you know she basically said look i don't know a single man who's worried who hasn't actually abused somebody in the past that the people who are worried are those who know that they have behaved in ways that are not acceptable and the folks who don't harass people and don't take advantage and don't exert their power over others they're not concerned and i'm curious how you respond to that just to clarify this is the idea that there are straight white men who feel that their rights and privileges are being impinged upon correct yeah i'm aware of it and it it makes me ill it's ridiculous it pisses me off to be completely honest um it's incredibly offensive for people with as much privilege as society can offer, if barring being a millionaire or billionaire, for them to be upset that somehow their privilege is being impinged upon, when oftentimes they refuse to acknowledge that they do benefit from an experience and are entitled to an unfair advantage in society. This, this privilege that, that they have that I just don't, I don't get it, Amy. I don't get it. I don't understand. And it's so frustrating. I, I've, I hate to keep repeating this phrase that I identify as a straight white man, but in this particular issue, I can't not feel and see and witness um, the privileges that society offers to me. And again, this doesn't necessarily mean that these people are making use of their privilege. They might not be in a geographical location where they can, but it doesn't mean that it's not a reality of society. If I may, I'd like to share um, what I think is the greatest example of white privilege that I have experienced. Please. Um, I had a very misspent youth, uh, lots of substance abuse, uh, landed in jail several times. And through those experiences, I saw firsthand uh, how my white privilege played out. Uh, there were cases where uh, there would be racial violence in the jail cell that I was not drawn into uh, because I was a white guy. There was one particular case where... I was released from jail after having been incarcerated for three days, um, was released with no shirt, no shoes, no glasses, and no money. So I just had a pair of pants on. And I was, I was able to basically re-enter society a lot more smoothly and easily than if I had been a person of color. Um, and I'm painfully well aware of that. I was able to bum some money off of somebody to make a phone call and have a friend pick me up. The process of paying restitution and court fees and uh, probation, uh, the system behaved in a way uh, that I felt was relatively uniform, regardless of racial or gender identity. But I feel as though I was able to financially recover and get jobs and start making money again and cope with a lot of these re-entry barriers. I feel as though I had an easier time of it uh, than somebody of color or a woman. 
And I absolutely felt my white male privilege. It was hard to not feel it and see it as as something palpable. And think, holy moly, um, I just I, I just went through this horrible experience of my own making through the justice system, experienced all of the um, failings of the justice system as it currently operates, but was able to come out of it not as impeded in, in reentering society than, than somebody who's not a straight white man. And so when other straight white dudes are complaining and moaning and getting paranoid about how they're somehow being discriminated against, in all honesty, it makes me vomit in my mouth a little bit. Do you ever see circumstances where you think to yourself, I know I have this privilege. I know I have these opportunities and possibilities that other don't have. Therefore, I'm going to use it for good. I'm going to use it to try to help somebody else or to open up space for somebody who perhaps doesn't have the same opportunity that I have. Yeah, that's a great question. And I do have an answer to that. Uh, it's kind of a two-part answer. Um, what I did in the immediate term after getting out of that last largest stint in jail, uh, and then how I carried that forward into later life with my career choices. Um, based on having seen and felt and benefited from uh, my straight white male privilege, I was sentenced uh, my, my punishment for the crimes uh, that I committed included uh, 300 hours of community service. So I didn't get any preferential treatment there because in Arizona at the time, uh, involuntary manslaughter got you 99 hours of community service, whereas myself and another person uh, attempted to burglarize a pawn shop. We weren't even successful at it because we were such idiots. But uh, I got 299 hours of community service. And, you know, growing up in a lower middle income family with just a working mom, working two jobs, there was no time or opportunity for this concept of volunteerism. So I grew up without an idea of volunteerism. But uh, having to do almost 300 hours of community service uh, very much opened my eyes to the value of volunteering in your community. So because the pawn shop that we attempted to burglarize happened to have guns in it, uh, the charges filed against me at first included a firearms charge, uh, which was later removed, but the fact that it had been there disqualified me from pretty much all community service except for picking up trash uh, in the local park, which is fine. It needs to be done. That's that's an important thing. Uh, but this newfound self-awareness motivated me to push back against the system. I happened to have a friend at the time who was involved with an organization called the Greater Phoenix Youth at Risk Foundation. And so uh, I slowly but successfully lobbied the state and got permission to perform my community service with the Greater Phoenix Youth at Risk Foundation, which I believe has no longer exists, at least not under that name. But at the time, it was a wonderful organization. And I feel that being a white guy uh, helped me make my case successfully for permission from the state to perform my community service hours with a youth organization. So I did get permission to do that, and I did complete the, the community service in that. 
I feel a little disingenuous saying that that was volunteerism because it was legally mandated community service. Uh, but I am glad that I had the uh, sort of a circumspect moment to, to think and acknowledge, like, there is something more impactful in the community that I can do because of my circumstances, because of what I was born into. And I've, and so to transition into the, from the, the what I did immediately into the longer term career choices, um, I ended up going into international development uh, where the uh, white male privilege is so much more pronounced and on display in, say, for example, West Africa, um, and worked as hard as I could uh, to leverage my circumstances for the benefit of others. And so worked overseas for many years, um, uh, working and traveling throughout West Africa, um, but not as an expat. I was living like a local because I got paid like a local, um, but was able to leverage not only just being a white male, but also a white male American, which carried with it a cachet that would get you into the doors of government ministers. And so to the best of my ability, played that card as hard as I could and uh, managed to get some things done that I'm still very proud about in terms of um, improving the lives and businesses of micro-entrepreneurs, but also now back in the U.S., um, continuing to use that uh, uh, in, in legitimate volunteer activities in my community. So, John, I'd like to go back to a few things that you said in your response and unpack some of this with you. Is that cool? You good with that? Yeah, absolutely. You talked about the fact that you used your white privilege, your white male privilege, to not have to pick up trash and instead were you found this new sense of volunteerism. That's wonderful. You know, I really hear how that helped you and made your life better. But I don't really hear, how did that help others? That's what I was trying to get at. Have you used this accessibility or this opportunity that you have to help others? And I really didn't hear how that played out in the first part of your response. Yeah, I'm glad you're asking and digging a little deeper. Um, in the particular instance of the Greater Phoenix Youth Foundation, as a volunteer, there was a real limit to how engaged I could be with the youth um, who were uh, caught up in the criminal justice system, um, kids from broken homes, uh, low-income families, what have you. And they had licensed psychologists on staff who were directly engaging with these kids, and that was appropriate. So my level of interaction was limited by design. However, um, going back to being inspired by volunteerism to, you know, what impact did that have on me? And then what did I in turn do to impact others? So getting to that, the short story is that years down the road, I was able to get a job uh, with uh, the city of Scottsdale in Arizona uh, managing an after-school project or after-school program uh, with disadvantaged kids. And because my default job has always been a bicycle mechanic, um, I w it was a, what's called an after-school earn-a-bike program 
where kids can come after school and enroll and they learn how to repair bicycles. And the hours they spend doing that, they can then use to um, sort of trade for a bicycle for themselves that they then know how to repair and can use to either get to school or a job or just have freedom of movement uh, that's affordable. And so I did that for three years. And in those three years, worked with um, kids between 10 and 15 was our age group. Uh, A lot of them had already been in juvenile detention or foster homes. And so it was an opportunity to use... um, my technical skill as a bicycle mechanic to actually manage a bike shop. But instead of having employees that I was supervising, these were kids that needed a lot more than just a bike to get around. So there was uncountable times, uh, you know, working with kids, talking with their parents, um, going on visits to their homes by request of either parents or siblings uh, to either talk a kid off the ledge or out of his locked bedroom. Sometimes kids needed a pat on the back or encouragement. And so uh, it's kind of the difference between training somebody, which there was lots of that. That was the premise of the program, compared to mentoring somebody, which requires emotional investment. And there was one 11-year-old, I remember, who already had prison tattoos from his cousins and uncles as an 11-year-old, which even for me working in that environment was uh, a little unusual. But all these kids were super smart. And one thing I noticed from having been in and out of jail and also working with kids that had been in and out of jails, usually there's a lot of critical thinking and creative problem solving that goes on in the critical mind or in the criminal mind. Uh, you know, these are people who recognize like I have no opportunities, nothing realistic in order to have a life. Let's think outside the box. And unfortunately that's usually illegal. And so all of these kids were super smart, um, but helping them realize that they had their own sort of, not sort of, they, they had their own innate intellectual horsepower that, was never coached or mentored or encouraged, uh, like how you access it and use your own um, capabilities to advance yourself and others and in a way that's not going to land you in jail. So that was uh, the bridge, I suppose, between uh, my first sort of eye-opening experience, uh, what that did to me, what I then went and did with it, and, and how uh, hopefully I helped improve the lives of some folks who really needed it. And then I wanted to pick up on the second thing that you said from that initial question. When you talked about your time in Africa, I have to tell you, your response, you know, although I admire going and and wanting to be of service, your response sounded pretty colonial. And I am wondering... Can you hear that? I have a good friend who always says to me, you know, people are usually willing to help others get by, but not pass them by. And it, it makes me examine, you know, my, my motivations. Am I, why, why am I doing this? And is, is this coming really from a place of service or is this, kind of colonialism. So I'll pause there. I'd like to hear your response. Yeah, you're right. I'm glad you're calling me out on it. 
Um, yeah, my my sort of life path um, definitely has taken me there for more years than I would have uh, liked to admit. In terms of you know the neocolonial thinking, um, you know I came from uh, well everything that we just went through. My first uh, opportunity to work overseas was again with bicycle mechanics. It was in Haiti, and it was my first experience in a less developed country. And Haiti, that was 1992. No, sorry, it was 1999. Um, and it hasn't got, come up much since then. There was people starving to death in the streets. Um, short story is that uh, I left Haiti with post-traumatic stress disorder because that was my first time seeing life in public that hard. And so bridging that with uh, this, uh, what you, the neocolonial perspective coming out of my mouth, there's a little bit of self-protection and preservation in not emotionally investing just because some of these scenes and experiences can really rock you to the core because outside of you know, Western Europe or the United States, North America, what have you, life can be pretty hard. People talk about the mean streets of D.C., but uh, there are still place, lots of places in the world that are far, far, far worse. So I hate to admit this, but in a sense, I took on this neocolonial disassociation out of emotional protection. It was a comfortable mental space to be. Um, and, you know, every couple of years something will happen and I'll find myself like, good Lord, like, why did I just say that or think that or feel that or not feel something um, that should have uh, elicited a strong emotional response. So I'm glad you're calling me out on it. Can you tell me about a time when you thought, I can't do something, or if I try to do this thing, that the consequences would be so great that it simply wasn't worth trying? Yes, I have experienced that, but that was uh, not in any way, shape, or form related to gender, just lack of self-confidence. Well, I'd, I'd still like to hear about it. I dropped out of college several times, um, sometimes because uh, I needed to work in order to uh, pay for books and whatnot, but, um, but there was always a, a self-doubt that um, played a big role. Um, Early on, I had always been very bad at school and hated it and and struggled to get C's to get through. And uh, my father, who is not a, a big figure in my early life, um, unfortunately once told me, well, don't worry, college isn't for everyone, implying that I, I probably wouldn't get in, so don't set yourself up for failure by trying and expecting. Um, and that is the closest thing. Thing I think that I have experienced to society shutting somebody down based on their gender. Um, I'm not comparing the two, but it's the closest experience I've had, and it took me years to get past it, and it wasn't until adulthood where um, my father had not yet retired, and I was making more than he was, and I absolutely rubbed his nose in it because I was still furious that that jerk had hung this cloak of... of I don't know what you call it, not guilt, but self-doubt, lack of self-confidence. Issues of self-confidence is something that plagues women and girls throughout our entire lives. Not, not all, but most. I, I don't know a single woman or girl who has not dealt with issues of self-confidence. 
either throughout her life or at various points in her life. And it's fascinating. Bear with me. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. You know, it's it's fascinating because we we talk about this. It's something we women discuss. And it's like, why, why do we so struggle with this self-confidence issue? And part of it is lower expectations or being told, you know, this is something you can't do, whereas our male counterparts have been told their whole lives this is not only something you can do, it's your right. And so I actually find it fascinating to see any, it it sounds like any person who is told, no, you can't do this, or no, it's not your right, may struggle with that. It's not that women are inherently less self-confident or men are inherently more confident. At least that's, that's what comes to me. If you have a comment, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I absolutely would love to uh, add one more comment. Um, from my own experience in life, my mom in particular, who was uh, both a, a great educator as a teacher and a great artist as an artist, uh, so was teaching art at a local community college. And in their art department, they had to make some budget cuts. She was the only woman. And predictably, she was the one that got fired, which was such a tragedy because she had won and earned so many accolades, both for her innovative art, as well as her skill and talent as an educator. And it was both a crime and travesty that she was the one that got fired. But at that time, in that context, it was logical that the first person you would fire is the woman, even though she had far more credentials to be doing what that department was doing. And so this example where my mom lost her job to a department filled with, you know, mediocre men, like, you know, pulling this back to the issue of self-confidence being so important, it ruined her self-confidence. She had, she'd struggled with it even before then, just because of the societal weight of, of discrimination against women that she had to fight against just to get that job in the first place. And so the fact that she lost her job because she was a woman, despite how much more uh, more credentials, more talent she had in that position. Uh, she lost her job to a department of mediocre men. And Lord knows it's not the first time and it won't be the last time. And even as a, a, a man myself, it's hard not to see this happen. And so as a, a young man early in my career, struggling with low self-confidence, I saw myself get overlooked and struggled with, well, am I just having a pity party? Uh, Do I just need to get over this? I need to work harder. I need to work longer. I need to work smarter. Uh, There's something that these other guys are doing that I'm not. It took me a long time to realize I just had shitty self-confidence. John, is there something that you'd like to see people start doing now to make a change around gender in the United States? That's probably the easiest question you've asked me so far. And I would love it if people just listened to each other and made their judgments based on the people, how people put themselves into the world. Just listen to other people. Listen actively. Listen intently. Listen with open ears, open mind, open heart. Just listen to people. And my last question, is there anything else either on something that we've already discussed or something I didn't bring up that you'd like to add? 
Nothing that you didn't bring up, but I will take this opportunity to thank you, Amy, for having me on and having this wonderful conversation and uh, giving me an opportunity to share my thoughts and experiences and opinions. And I really appreciate it. And thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much, John, for coming over. Thanks, Amy. You've been listening to Your Own Voice, the podcast about gender experience and perspective. Your Own Voice is produced by me, Amy Breslow, with IT support from Alex Moreno and is registered with ProtectRight, music by Kevin McLeod. If you have comments or questions that you would like addressed on the show, please submit them on the website, yourownvoice.org contact. Lastly, I'm excited to announce the launch of a Patreon campaign for the Your Own Voice podcast. My goal is to expand the diversity of voices heard on the show and to keep this a safe platform for people of all genders, free from any external influence like advertisers. I invite you to check out my page at patreon.com slash your own voice podcast, and I hope you'll become a part of my Patreon community. Thank you for joining us today. I'll be back in two weeks with the next episode. Until then, take care and be well.